This is In Between Stations Radio. How do you lose a place and possibly get it back again? I mean, all of us have lost people and friends, members of our family that have passed away. Uh, some of us that have been to wars have lost people and um, lost parts of ourself and tried to, to work at bringing that all back into balance and being whole again. But when we lose some place, when we lose somebody that we love, something that, something that we know, I don't know if it's possible to fully love somebody if you don't know them. If I, I think it takes a, I think knowing someone brings on a deeper form of love because you know the weaknesses and you know all the things that make that personality. And so I think there's a there's a stronger kind of love, in my opinion, you know, with knowing someone that really sometimes a stranger. You can't give that to them fully. And I think sometimes that's why family people are so strong in our lives. But this particular broadcast is about losing a place. It's about fire. It's about destruction. It's about taking away a place that you've known for years that allows you to heal. A place where you know all the animals. You even know the trees. You even know the rocks and the grass. And you've been going there through all the seasons and you know the changes and you know the feel of the place. Not dissimilar from knowing someone that you love. And so I use the word a place that you love, a wilderness, and that's what I'm talking about. A wilderness being that there's not roads there, that it's not connected to technology, that it's not connected to lots of people going through and moving out, that it pretty much lives in its own solitude and maintains that that thing that we call wilderness. And um, even the even the word wild, if you go back to the Latin word and its connections, you'll start seeing that there's a connection to to the land, to the animals, and. Um, it's been a rough one. We've had this year two huge fires in Flagstaff. Flagstaff is an immensely beautiful place if you're not from here. It has one of the largest ponderosa pine forests in the world. Flagstaff proper city is actually in a forest. So when we talk about burning, it's, it, it's a different story in a place like Flagstaff because it's built in the heart of the forest. And so anything that affects our, our, our beautiful mountain, it has many names, it's sacred to 21 tribes. Anything that affects her, and I'm using a gender because I think, for me, it is a her. Because she is a creator, a mother figure that gives life to these great, tremendous storms that we have in the water. A lot, almost all of our water we have in the city comes from her. From her, all her many beautiful springs freshwater springs, which many of them I know to and run to with my uh, Native American friends that have made me aware of all the water that comes from this mountain. Uh, and it belongs not only to humans, but to 
But to all these beautiful life forms, some of them extremely rare that live only in the San Francisco peaks, and these beautiful trees and plant lice, and some of those rare as well, that need this water. And she gives life to all these things. And if the mountain itself was suddenly removed, and all the life on it, then things would drastically change here. And so I see her as a life giver. And many of my traditional friends from various tribes address her in, the, in that way, as the life giver. And they've learned from being here on this landscape for thousands of years what she gives. And if you stand back 100, 200, 300 miles, you can see what I mean, especially if you stand in these very hot deserts that we have in, in northern Arizona that can get 120 degrees sometimes. When you stand there, you watch these, this beautiful place, the San Francisco peaks, give birth to these storms, these tremendous storms that bring rain to us. Without her there, they, these would not be possible. The snow that comes. And so you see her as this, this incredible creator figure that gives so much to us. And uh, in Mexico and Central America and down in South America, these, have, these kind of mountains have very special names. And almost all of them are concerned life-giver and creator. Birth the water we drink. And um, so, yeah, she, the life giver, the San Francisco Peaks, it's a living being. This is not anything new to Native American thought, uh, to indigenous thought with tribes in Australia and other places, that the earth itself is a living being, and that mountains and landscapes are the same. They have their, their connection to, to the place. And we know just through things like weather and uh, understanding that and orographic lifting that a mountain and the change in elevation affects the weather greatly. And, and trees and plants attract moisture. And the way deserts are born, and one of the most interesting things about one of our biggest and hottest places on Earth, the Sahara Desert, is in the middle of one of the hottest places in that desert are petroglyphs of rivers, of fish, of people fishing, of giraffes and elephants, of, of grasslands. These are beautiful petroglyphs. You can find them in the National Geographic. And you can look at this. Whoever performed this art was not only a gifted artist, but had this love of the landscape and of the animals. And um, now it's just all sand. It's one of the hottest places on Earth. I don't even think... And I, and I've looked at a map before, there's not even a close-by place. It's quite a, an adventure to get to these petroglyphs. That, and if you do remote sensing with satellites, it, it shows you these immense rivers that used to flow through the Sahara Desert. So places can change. And um, sometimes dramatically and quite quickly. We know from these primeval forests, these huge expansive forests that we completely stripped the land of in the latter 19th century that it never returned. Some of these places are just dust bowls or cities were built over the top of them. Uh, these, these forests never returned and there, there never was a recovery. 
in Flagstaff. Um, there's been numerous times that it's been logged here, especially in the beginning of the early 20th century. Entire spans of landscape were devoid of trees and cut down. And the older trees were the ones that were taken because there's a lot more value in an older tree, especially one that's six, seven hundred years old. And they, they were very common in that time period. Not so common now. And these trees, and I know them because what few are left, that's one of my hobbies. I don't know if that's the right word. That's one of my, one of the things I love to do is find old trees in places where they've never been cut. And um, every time, without, without exception, all these old trees have been through many, many fires, especially the ones that are over 500 years old. And they bear the scars of these tremendous fires, and the bark grows over it, the fire. And you, you can see these scars where the charcoal and the burn is. And you understand that many fires passed through that landscape, and this tree survived all of them. This, tr this tree survived droughts. This tree survives severe storms, and up on some of these mountains, the wind blows close to 100 miles an hour, especially in the wintertime when these big storms come through. These trees are powerful, and they're strong, and they're able to endure tremendous fires and drastic changes in the climate. And the problem when you cut down these trees is the younger trees grow back and the, and the land knows, the trees know they have to grow back to take the place of this ancient tree that's been cut down. So you might have 20 or 30 trees growing in the place of that one huge ancient tree that was there. And so you get this overgrowth of trees that have not been through fires. And here in Arizona where the ancient trees glow, grow, the distances are far apart between the trees. You could literally drive two or three trucks between these, these the span of distance between these ancient trees. Um, I'm speaking of one mountain in particular that's not very well known and I don't like to share its name because it's such a wilderness and it's untouched. It's never ever been cut. And the timber there is the ponderosas are simply amazing. To sit under one of those huge trees that four people couldn't get their arms around and to see how the rest of the landscape is connected to that how the animals need that, how that one tree is an anchor in the very, in the, in the, in the steepness. I've talked about this in other broadcasts, in the steep, steepness of this mountain, this volcanic, this Pleistocene volcano is extremely steep mountain. It's almost impossible to stand on it. And these big ancient trees have rooted in that, and then they, they collect this whole little system of grass and rocks, and the animals can sleep there, and and uh, the birds can land there and over hundreds of years it builds this meadow that grows on this absolutely impossible mountain to almost stand on and yet it's an anchor and so it's just this amazing place to go and I watched <laughs> one night from a distant mountain here in Flagstaff is this horrible fire we just had that's just I think it's up to 30,000 acres now just burned through places that were so close to my heart and has actually destroyed one of the places I've been going for years. It was just untouched wilderness. It's, it's gone. Very hard on me because it's the place that I retreat. It's the place that I get connected to, to the earth, to the sky, to all these animals I've grown to know. And the place that I first made contact, pretty sure, with the Mexican wolf, which 
is a very rare species now. There's very few of them left. And some of these wolves are not recorded. They don't have collars. And they come up into our flagstaff like they used to long ago, like they're supposed to. And this is one of the areas they're going. Of course, they're not, it's all gone now. The trees are gone. The animals are gone. But this one mountain, it really surprised me. I went out there. And, and there's this horrible burn going on. And I stood by this mountain and the fire had burned completely through it and left these ancient giant trees untouched. Just a little bit of a burning. So it burnt the undergrowth and left this beautiful f ancient forest intact. So once again, these great giant trees endured the fire. And when you cut all these trees down and you have this erosion and then the the trees know they have to grow back in a huge amounts to make up for the old trees that are gone. And one of the biggest problems in Flagstaff is after years and years of timber cutting in various cycles that stopped I think in the mid-1970s here, you have these huge thick growths of trees that are unparalleled in the history of Flagstaff's forests. And I, I run through these, I, I spent a lot of years in these trees and they've gotten thicker and thicker and then we and then we have fire suppression you know it's a policy for a long time to suppress these natural fires that burn through the forest like on this other mountain I'm talking about where you know you could drive three trucks between each of these ancient giant trees and there's hundreds of them they grow far apart um, not the case in a lot of places on our beautiful mountain and these are the effects of human beings. This would not have happened if humans wouldn't have interacted with the environment in the way they did. And of course, things have changed a lot. We don't, we don't cut timber that way like we used to, hopefully. But these are the after effects that we're putting up with here, you know, 100 years later. And, um, and relearning how to fight fires and relearning that it's part of the natural ecology of an area. But some of these fires now burn so hot that even these ancient giants are engulfed in flames and die. When a, when a tree dies by fire that's the age of a sequoia, a thousand years old, and those have burned recently in California, you better be, you better be, that's, that's a, not a good thing. When a tree stood there, you know, a thousand, two thousand years, these big sequoias and redwoods, and it burns up in the fire, that's not a good sign. There's something very wrong. And so that's not what this is about, but my original question is, how do you lose an area? And then you realize that it's connected to everything in that area. It's connected to the rain. It's connected to the animals. It's connected to retreating and finding peace of mind. It's connected to the cycles of the seasons and the birds and the snowfall. All these things attract this beautiful thing that we call an ecosystem but really what it is it's a living life force of a of a of a landscape of a planet in our planet right now i just looked at the nasa has a special site dedicated to fire where they take satellite photos and they have supercomputers now that can gauge the how much fire is burning compared to years past and it's it's pretty accurate stuff our planet's on fire now for the first time there's regions in Africa and the Congo and places in the Amazon that are burning, that are on fire. And, and huge expanses of rainforest are on fire. 
Madagascar right now is on fire. The last parts of its very highly endangered forest because a lot of it's been logged for the the very rare wood that you find in Madagascar, which is a, a huge island that sets off the coast of, of Africa. Half that half that island's on fire right now. I this is not about global warming. What this is about, and I, I think I want to make this point, is it's about conservation. It's about not it's about how many times you flush your toilet. It's about how many times that you wash your clothes. Uh, it's about how many times you wash your car at the car wash, how many times you water your lawn. A lawn that's not often not even indigenous like here in Flagstaff. Um, the kind of grass that grows, this bluegrass from Kentucky, is water intensive. And it, this landscape does not have that kind of grass. Uh, doesn't ha it can't support that because we don't have the kind of water you have back east in the Midwest and on the East Coast. And, you know, these tribes know that. These tribes have indigenous plants and horticulture that doesn't need a lot of water. And they've learned that, uh, they've learned the cycle of these tremendous droughts. They've learned that you need to respect these beautiful forests because they're exceptionally rare. And you know, if you're in these forests a lot, it can be 110 degrees out there in the painted desert and you go up into the up the elevation of the mountain into the forest and it cools down to 75 degrees shade and birds and you can hear running water and the winds blowing in the pines and it's a and these tribes knew the beautiful life force of these mountains and how when you go there you fast and you pray and and you're thankful to these things but us outsiders don't understand that when everything's equated in terms of money but what's a lover worth if she's dead? If he's dead, if he's not around anymore, how many hugs can you get? How much conversation can you get? It's the same with the landscape. When, we, when you lose a place and you go back and you see the animals are dead and you see the burned up trees and you see all the springs and water are capped and the water is redirected back into the bigger city and it's taken from the forest. Where even if we had a tremendous drought there would still be water available for the trees and the animals but we take all that and we direct it back to the city to ourselves and then we wash our cars obsessively do our laundry more than we need to water our lawns more than all these things are being drawn away from this precious resource this life giver called our mountain you have your own mountain and these mountains are sacred because of the many things they do for us. And they shouldn't just be put dollar. If you want to put dollars and cents on them, then say the worth of the peacefulness, the worth of sitting under a beautiful pine tree in the shade versus if out in the desert where there's no trees. And I've grown up in a desert, the Great Salt Lake Desert. There's absolutely no vegetation there. When it's 100 degrees, it's even hotter at the surface of this vast play of white alkaline that makes this great salt lake desert so beautiful but there's no shade except on these islands and mountains that are in the middle of the great salt lake desert and you can go there and cool off in the same way i'm talking about but if you're out in the desert where there's no trees and the reflection of the heat is so tremendous i would say the surface sometimes of that desert and i've walked with it on my bare feet you can't you could actually cook an egg <laughs> on the surface of the playa during the hottest times of summer there. Uh, it's that hot. 
When you don't have trees, when you have all asphalt in these cities with urbanization and with cars and with roofs and, and uh, these big urban centers like in Atlanta, Georgia, I lived there for a while, um, and that was a long time ago, they produced these tremendous storms, uh, unparalleled in recorded history. The heat just, you know, the convection rises and produces massive storms that, um, that are, that probably shouldn't be there. And I mean, my point is, do we can make cities different than we do. And there have been civilizations that's done that, that's been incorporated into the environment. The water flows through, there's, the, the water flows through the city openly, there's streams and rivers, there's trees, there's birds, there's wild animals, uh, the pathways are natural, and you can find places like that in these super civilizations that we're starting to discover in the Amazon basin, which are a lot harder to find because it's such thick vegetation, the thickest on the planet, uh, versus like in Mexico City where you can find these uh, these places and it's still hard there in Central America and Mexico because there's a lot of vegetation there's rainforest there uh, cloud forests they call them um, we're, we're beginning to discover and that bringing up Mexico City and uh, Tanish Talon and Teotihuacan these great urban centers were designed to work with the environment it, it's possible we have the science but the greed continues for a few and so the emphasis is put into the computer programs, the emphasis is put into the advertisements, to the real estate, to businesses that probably don't even belong in, in certain regions just because it demands on the resources to, to expend these resources that belong to us, that belong to the animals, that belong to the balance of the planet. And I won't excuse that in the name of earthquakes and in the name of natural processes. Those will always come. We know that by the geological record. For God's sakes, you go to the Grand Canyon, it's totally intact. You can see these cataclysmic events. But we, in a short amount of time, have increased potentiality towards cataclysmic events, especially for us as human beings. Earth will never die. She'll go on. And there have been time periods where there hasn't, there's been mass extinctions. That's totally... Um, evident by the fossil record which is intact entirely intact you can tell we had these time periods where there are these mass extinctions yes they'll come and they'll go but what does that say for you as a human being what does that say when you lose your house what does that say when you can't afford a house what does that say when you have a huge lawn in front of your house or a golf course that's huge and you're watering that in a place like Flagstaff where we have these tremendous droughts. There's places you can have golf courses. There's places you can have lawns. But why in God's name would you put that in the middle of one of the most drought-stricken places in the world? And we have places like the Sahara Desert that once were aquatic, had huge flowing rivers, had animals and grasslands, savannas. And, you know, satellites and fossil record tell us that. We can lose a place, and rather quickly. We have lost, we've lost these places, a lot of them. And it takes thousands of years to produce a giant sequoia. It takes thousands of years to produce the canopy of a, millions of years, the canopy of a beautiful rainforest that's exceptionally rare. Uh, and it just takes a long time to, to get these things. And the life, 
the lifespan of a human being is ex exceptionally short. And so we lose the memory, especially if we've been in an area only 250 years versus a tribe somewhere like the Zuni that's been there four or five thousand years in the general landscape migrating around. What, what do they know about the weather? What do they know about the cycles and the system? Or some of these tribes in Africa that have been there 10,000 years. You have a knowledge of change. The Aborigines in Australia and their mythologies and their stories, 60,000 years or more they've been there. And they have this, some of the tribes there, and there's many, have intact memory of the, of the Ice Age. And, and before the Ice Age, and these massive floods that came into Australia, and these horrible droughts. And they learn what they need to do. They learn the, the value of a tree, the value of a mountain, where it snows up there. And they know the changes there, and they have adapted. And the adaption is in a tremendous respect for things like water, and for the wildlife, and the cycles of how they all work together. And we moderns seem to just be oblivious to that, especially with our digital, our digital programs, this digital world that we live in, the TV shows we watch, and the cars we drive. I drive a car sometimes. I went for almost four years without a car, purposely, to see if I could survive. I don't have a washer and dryer in my apartment. I used to have those things. I wash my clothes, most of them, with my bare hands and a washboard. And I like it. It keeps me in shape. It's my gym. And I have a clothesline. Now, it wasn't easy at first. And I pointed out the fact, too, a place like Hopi that's been there thousands of years, the average water use in those villages is about 3.5 gallons a day per person. You shift that down to Phoenix with swimming pools, with constant washing and drying and washing your car and artificial rain out in front of the restaurant, over 300 gallons per person. And in the greater Phoenix area, I think almost what six million people now maybe a little less than that and it's growing it's one of the fastest growing places in the united states get that many people using 300 gallons of water per person a day and we live in a drought-stricken environment that's that's not natural and i and i and i keep saying that we're having this what we many scientists are calling a thousand year drought and that's because of these very accurate core samples we can take from the soil and from trees and from the tribes that remember we're having this tremendous drought we could get through it except we don't know how to conserve we just keep growing and growing and we don't know how to stop we don't know how to stop how to turn off the tap how to you know, to stop taking three or four showers a day and washing your clothes obsessively and i have a friend that washes his car every two days and he has four cars and, and, and here, you know, where, where it's a drought and we, and, and we don't have a lot of water, um, it's a problem. So I think, I think we need to start learning that we can push a catastrophic event. And that's what we're doing now. And, and our planet in places that shouldn't be is on fire. And, and you shouldn't have big, huge fires in a rainforest. Not typically. You have them. You've been having them. That's part of the ecology of a rainforest, but not like here. You just don't have, because the rainfall is hundreds of inches. That when you cut a forest down, like in Madagascar, most half the rare rainforest there has been timbered and cut down. 
the climate has changed. In fact, when you the erosion and the floods, the tremendous rainfall on that on that big island, um, there's nothing to stop it. It just goes out in the ocean. You can see this big, huge ring of erosion that flows out of the off the bare slopes of Madagascar. And all of us know that when you have a huge fire, especially here in Flagstaff, you're going to have big, massive floods if there's no trees up on the mountain. Uh, and that's catastrophic. If you cut them all down, you know, and you don't, and you don't need to, a uh, hundred years later, you're like, um, we have a good problem here, folks. So I, I think we can rethink things out. We can replan them. This isn't, this isn't about population growth. This isn't about um, being Republican or Democrat. This is about common sense for the future and for our children and blending the environment and our other brothers and sisters that are animals and trees and plants into our cities, into our thinking, and knowing that we need each other. And that it isn't just human. When you just think of one thing, it really blows it out of proportion. So I think, I think we have the ability to make things a lot better and a lot wiser. And yes, we'll have catastrophic events. Those will continue. But with, the, with our science and with our thought processes, we can plan for those things. Uh, and so, I, you know, these are just ideas. But when you lose a place and you have a short lifetime, maybe I'll live to be, I hope, in my 70s or early 80s. I don't know. I could die tomorrow. <laughs> But when you lose a place that you know all the animals, you know the trees and the rocks, and you know the, the seasons, and you know this area like you know a lover, you go there. I've been going to some of these places for over 22 years, daily almost. If you don't know it, then you don't have, you don't have permission to criticize. Don't, you know, don't tell me my wife's ugly and I don't love her because you don't know her. Don't tell me about these areas that I've lost that I'll never be able to go back to. Yes, they'll return. But they needn't have burned down. <laughs> there are a lot of things and politics and things. You know, this tremendous fire we had two months ago, the forest should have been shut down. Because they're, they're at a stage, and they have different stages. We're at the worst one for fire. And we knew that at the end of this last fire. And we should have closed the forest, but they remained open. And thousands of people were in those forests. And out of those thousands, you know somebody's going to fire a gun or start a fire. And they weren't closed down. And they were asked repeatedly by some of the local people to close the forest down. And yet there were some in these businesses that have the tourist dollars flowing in that don't want the forest closed because that's how they make money. So a few people were able to turn things, in my mind, that impact the rest of us and i think it's just about realizing we have a very sacred and beautiful thing here that we call our mountain the san francisco peaks uh, and there's many other names tribal names for it that is a creator that supplies us with life with rain and moisture with snow with the things that we need with shade and coolness you know on the weekends you see a phoenix from this hot hot huge urban center all retreat and come up to Flagstaff to cool off. That's okay. That's why you have these forests, but we need to learn to manage them better. We learn to, we need to learn to appreciate what we have and not always use so much of a resource, but to be respectful of it. Anyway, those are ideas about losing a place, losing someone you love, 
losing a landscape you love, animals you love. You'll never see them again. They're gone. Yeah, they might come back. But if you lose something you love or somebody you love, you realize at some point you're not going to see them for a while, maybe never again. So, um, my thing is, I learned from being in a war and I've learned from other tragic experiences, I know how to cry. And I didn't used to know how to cry. And that was one of the one of the things that caused me a lot of a lot of problems is being a man and not crying. I know how to cry and I know how to sorrow, but not for too long. Because I know that you have to move forward at some point. But we need to also be honest with ourselves. And the loss here in a place that I know that I knew so well that I will never see again. Not like it was. And so, um, yeah, losing a place. It's a reality, and we need to think about um, what that means, and can we do a better job of not making that loss happen so quickly. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from these tribes that's been living here thousands of years to understand perfectly the value of a resource, understand conservation. Oh, my God. If you go to these traditional places in these tribes, that's conservation is what it's all about. Well, especially if you only have one little spring that water's flowing out. The entire village depends on that water. You can bet that spring's going to be cleaned out and it's going to be taken care of and it's going to be a part of the religious process because water is so precious. And these tribes here know that. These tribes have water at the center of their religions. It's, it's their gratitude towards a beautiful creator that we have. We're a species and we're a planet that are born from water and when you and we should respect that so loss will be there but also the ability to sorrow for something you do lose and to learn not always be going through the school of hard knocks um, <laughs> you know hitting your head self in the head with a hammer and keep doing the same mistake over and over that doesn't have to be a political value I don't really give a damn about political parties. I'm not a member of either of these political parties. It's some of us, some of you fight to each other about. I'm saying, you know, find some middle ground there and let's not lose the beautiful forest and the beautiful landscapes we have. And when we build cities, let's, let's do it in balance. Let's have trees and let's have, and I'm talking about, let's have, the indigenous trees that are suited to the environment. That we're not growing things from England or from from the East Coast where it rains where the rainfalls triple, quadruple what we have here. Indigenous plants that's grown here for thousands of years that understand the drought cycles. Especially these beautiful ancient Ponderosa pines. They know about drought. And you can see it when you look at the tree rings. And they know how to survive, and, and they know how to conserve. There's certain plants, and there are certain things for certain areas. And when you get these, these plants, these uh, invading plants that don't have any competition, uh, or demand a lot of water, and that demand a lot of care, um, it doesn't work in the long term. And these tribes know that really well. That's why a Hopi era corn only needs one one good rain or a couple of rains and it, it grows like a tree and yet the corn that I you know that I learned to plant a little farm we had you had to water that stuff 
<laughs> every weekend and, and you know all day and all night long and that's that's a resource so may and if i would have known anything in my sure my stepdad would have known we would have planted hopi corn well you don't need to use hardly any water you know but that there's a little more rainfall where i grew up than there is here in in the deserts of arizona so using common sense everything doesn't have to die it isn't natural for everything to die not 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 the accelerated rate we are now which i think put aside global warming and just say look what about conservation can we do that before we make these other huge steps can we drive a little less can you make electric cars a little less expensive so everybody has a chance to have one or is it just for the for the elite for the so-called yuppies <laughs> or on the other extreme the so-called rednecks i grew up as a redneck they have these big huge four-wheel drives that's okay but for God's sakes, do you have to like fill up the gas tank every two days and drive it up and down Main Street? I don't know. That's up to you. That's not, I don't know if that's the problem more than where we have a few people that are benefiting from what's going on. And the most of us are working hard and trying to get by and we're not benefiting. And we need to use our common sense and look at things. And I think these tribes have a lot to tell us because they've been in an area so long and they've capitalized on their mistakes in the past. So, all right, losing a place and maybe not having to lose a place. All right, that's, that's, <laughs> have a nice day, thoughts, and let's, let's do better. I think we can.
Lima, Delta, Echo. Lima, Delta, Echo. This is in between stations radio broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA.